We're uh, beginning a series now looking at the Lord's Prayer. Some of you grew up in church traditions in which you stated the, you stated the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. So it's quite familiar to you. But we're going to spend, be spending the most, of our, most part of our semester looking at this prayer, this model prayer of our Lord Jesus that teaches us how to pray. So I do believe it's appropriate to begin with prayer. So let's pray together. I want to pray in particular, Chase Wyland's mama this week. Some of you know Chase. His mom, Lisa, is having um, surgery. She's had um, some, uh, been fighting cancer. And so this surgery is a part of the particular form of cancer that she's having. Very, very serious. And so we'll be praying for Chase as he's got a lot of weight on him as a young man and caring for his mom. And um, yeah, and let's pray for Lisa. She's here often with us, uh, worshiping amongst our congregation. Let's pray for her healing, for her daily provision. And, uh, and pray for us as we begin this series. Lord Jesus, man, what a gift. A strange and mysterious gift. What from the outside looks like crazy people talking to air. But in the reality, the truth of what you told us is that we stand before the very throne room of God, laying the requests and the burdens of our hearts at your feet, to the one who has the heart of goodness towards us and wants, us, wants good for us, for the one who is wise enough to give us what is truly good for us, even though we don't know what it is, and the one who is powerful enough to bring about all that is for our good and that nothing can stand in your way. And so as your people, we pray that we would come to know you this semester that we would come to know our gods, that what would pervade us as a church would be a people who parent and lead and labor and work and cry on our knees. Lord, we enact that in a very specific way this morning as we pray for Chase's mom. Lord, I pray for Chase. I pray that you would... um, Strengthen him this week with the discipline of sitting at your feet. That worry would not be the thing that he eats this week, but a pouring out of his soul and his fear before you, for the God who can do something about it, for the God who loves his mom more than he does. Lord, we pray for his mother that you would protect her. Lord, as we're going to learn about in the coming weeks, the kingdom of God and and your kingdom, Lord, moms, single moms don't get cancer anymore. And so, gracious God, I pray that your kingdom would come in this way, that you would eradicate this disease in her body, that you would use the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary uh, common grace of surgery in the doctor's wisdom of using the, the natural world and the world that we've discovered over thousands of years as to how to eradicate this. Would you use their work? But Lord, Spirit of the living God, we know that ultimately it's your power. And so we lay our request before you, knowing that, Lord, you desire her goods. You have the wisdom to give her what is truly good for her and for Chase, and you have the power to bring about what is for her good, and nothing, no evil can stand in the way. No threat of Satan, no temptation of man, no enforce, force of this broken world can stop 
your goodness being brought to bear upon her life and upon Chase's life. So with that truth, we look to you and we lay this request before you in the name of your son who won us this right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was studying revival earlier this year. Some of it out of my own personal need for it. I need the Lord to revive me spiritually. But also because of my own personal sense of our church's need, that in many ways, in my time here, I've been here for seven years. For quite a long period of time, the first five years or so, there was life and vigor. And the Lord and his providence brought some hard things in the last couple of years. And, I, and it may have been me projecting my own spiritual state of exhaustion and spiritual depression and projecting it upon my whole church. But I'm the pastor, so I get to do that every once in a while. Um, and in studying revival and thinking about revival, there were some components to it that came to the forefront. One is the, the fact that we can't control it. It's the Spirit who does it. Thus led to our series on the spirits, because I wanted us to think and ponder anew and ask for the Holy Spirit of God to fill us up and to be amazed at the power that is at our hands in the Spirit of God who resides within us. But the other thing that I, as I read and, and thought and studied, and the, the, it's apparent and obvious, if you were to look at the history of revival in the church throughout the world, it comes because simple people without very great gifts necessarily or very great skills, very simple people did a simple thing and they did it for years and years and years. And some of them saw no fruit seemingly of this simple act until suddenly one day revival fell. You could trace all the revivals of the history of the Christian church to a, a movement of prayer. That when God's church becomes a people who realizes we are so weak, we are so tired. We are so unable to change us, our children, or the world around us. When we become so desirous and so sick and tired of the brokenness of this world that we become a people who fall on our knees and are passionate about prayer, guess what happens? The Spirit falls and revival comes. And my... my in all honesty, in, in my not pastor speak or cliches, that my greatest desire and what I view as being spiritual, the vigor of spiritual life in you comes from each one of you experiencing intimacy with God. That you would know your God, that you would experience his presence, that you would talk to him as a friend, and that you would know that he hears you and that he is there with you. And I'm convinced that the reason why we have so many people who have to see a counselor in this church, and don't hear me wrong, I believe that there are th such things as, as depression and pathological, pathological medical anxiety. It's why we have a, a counselor here who has abilities both in understanding the scriptures and the scientific side. But I am convinced of this, is that our, the core of our depression, our joylessness, 
our clogged up emotions, our clogged up, backed up anger that seems to come out of us like steam out of a teapot, our missionless lifestyle, our lack of evangelism, our sense of frustration and our doubts is because we do not dwell closely with our God. You will you not experience the release of your emotions and a sense of the grandeur and the power of what God is doing in this world until you come to know the God for whom you serve. You come to know what he desires in this world until you've sat long enough in the presence of the Lord in order to hear his voice awaken your emotions for him or sat long enough such that your emotions that have been building up within you like a dam, water behind a dam, suddenly break forth and you are brought to a place of emotional sanity and revival happens in your life. The one concern of the evil one is to keep the church of Jesus Christ, to keep God's people from talking and spending time with God. Samuel Chadwick An old Puritan in his book, The Path of Prayer, wrote this. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into, the pow- into powerful men. Prayer brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. So, we will spend this whole semester looking at prayer. We're going to start with the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to look at literally the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, at the back half of the semester. And understand this. We are later on actually going to have a, a, a conference, a seminar on prayer. But this is not about methods or models. The Lord's Prayer is indeed a model. But ultimately, that is not what we're talking about. Ultimately, what provides a pr- vibrant prayer life is to come face to face, is to want to know your God. A.W. Tozer said this, some, ch- of the ch- some churches now advertise courses on how to pray, How ridiculous, he says with an exclamation point. This is like giving a course on how to fall in love. And so my desire and my hope in this series, week in and week out, is not that we would ultimately give you a method of praying, although there are some wise things and strategies we can give to improve your prayer life, but our desire in this is that you would fall in love with your God by watching Jesus interact with his Father in prayer. What is prayer? So that's your series introduction. Now we dive into it this morning. What is prayer? Prayer is about connecting to your God as Father. Prayer, according to the old ancient definition, is keeping company with God and experiencing the God who always keeps company with you. An old professor who died a couple years ago named Edmund Clowney said this, the Bible does not present an art of prayer. Instead, it presents the God of prayer. We should not decide how to pray based on the experiences and feelings we want. Instead, we should do everything possible to behold our God as he is. And when that happens, prayer will follow. The more clearly we grasp who God is, the more our prayer is shaped and determined accordingly. So who is your God's? 
And what is your relationship with him like? Prayer, at the core of it, is about how you view the God who resides in heaven and who made all the heavens and the earth. And so when you pray, Jesus said what? Pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. Here's what it says, Matthew 5. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And here it is. Pray then like this. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When you pray, you start like this. My Father, our Father. Jesus could have begun, rightly could have begun, we should have begun our prayers with our King, our Creator, or our Lord, or even simply just jump right into praise. Holy, holy, holy would have been appropriate as well. Instead, Jesus takes on his lips an expression, an expression of intimacy in our prayer life as we approach God that no one had used to describe the Almighty One up to this point. It is true that the word Father is used occasionally in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with the people of Israel, but never had anyone used or dare used the word Abba, a word of such intimacy in such a personal way to describe God the Father. Blaise Pascal famously said this, God has made man his own image, though, and man has returned the compliments. God comes to us and says, I am your father, I am your Abba, and yet we have distorted that image of God, and therefore we have distorted and destroyed our prayer lives, so that our prayer lives are either joyless or they are non-existent. Our problems with trusting God stem from one source. It's that we have a distorted image of who God is. It's that we fail to view him as our father. In fact, many of us feel hateful towards God because we assume that God feels hateful towards us. And Jesus says when he comes into this world, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, I want to heal your image of my father. You will never understand this. You'll never understand what we're going to go after here at the heart of prayer. You'll simply tack on prayer as a part of a religious activity that you're to do unless you see the context of the Lord's Prayer right before we get to our Father. Here's the context. The context of the Lord's Prayer is this. It's in the middle of what Jesus' is most famous and his longest sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout his sermon, Jesus is making a contrast between two people but not the two kind of people that you would think that Jesus is making a contrast between. He is not contrasting religious people from non-religious people. 
He is not contrasting the difference between moral people and immoral people, between good people and bad people. No, Jesus assumes that all people are actually incurably religious, and we are. We all have something that we trust in. Neither Jesus nor Paul later on will will contrast religion and non-religion. The contrast instead is between religious prayers and Christian prayers. Between orphans and children. Let's see it in the text. At the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, if you were to look right before we get to the Lord's Prayer section, Jesus here is actually, he goes on and talks about giving to the needy. However, he compares those who give one way with those who give another. Both people in verses 1 through 5 give, but one gives as a religious person, the other gives as a Christian. When you give, don't give like this. It assumes that we will be a generous giving people. But he says, when you give, when you carry out this religious activity, don't give in this way, give like this. And then after the Lord's Prayer, he's going to have now have a discourse on fasting. And he, again, he's going to assume that people fast. He says, don't fast like religious people. Don't fast like the hypocrites, but instead, fast like this. And then in our, in our passages again, we come to a comparison. And when you pray, he assumes that all people praise. And in fact, actually, if you look at the statistics, the vast majority of people, and actually the statistics show that most people would say, admit, over 70% of people admit to praying every single day. Even people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus or have any kind of affiliation with any religion. That at some point in their day, they shoot some sort of thought or declaration up to some sense of some deity up there. The question is not whether we pray. The question is why or how are you praying? Don't pray like that. Pray like this. And here is Jesus' point. Jesus is saying is that the major difference in the world is not between religious people and irreligious people, between good and bad people who pray and give and fast, but the major difference is between those who know God as their father and those who do not. The major difference of what Jesus is comparing here in the context of the Lord's Prayer is between those who know God as their Father and those who do not. And if you know God as your Father, it transforms your prayer life. There are two different ways human beings approach God, no matter who you are or where you're from, all approach God in this way. You approach Him either as your Father or as an orphan child's coming to someone you don't know and, frankly, you're afraid of. So let's compare these two ways of praying and try to understand them as we begin our look at the Lord's Prayer. First, Jesus gives a comparison between the prayers of orphans and the prayers of children. We're going to look first at the prayers of orphans. Jesus says, how well do you pray? Do you pray like a child calling out to your father, or do you pray like orphans pray? How do orphans pray? He gives us two descriptions of how orphans pray, of how the religious pray. First, he says that they pray in order to be seen by men. You've heard that it was said. Perhaps you've heard that it was said that being a hypocrite, and the Pharisees are known as being the hypocrites. He said, the hypocrites are those who pray in order to be seen by men. Reagan Wilburn, who's a pastor out in California, says it like this, that a hypocrite is like an actor But he says a hypocrite is actually one who has worn the actor's mask for so long that they no longer know who they are. 
Have you forgotten who you are? Jesus says, look at how this orphan, look at how he prays. Look what he's enslaved to. What's, what's this person enslaved to as he prays? The thoughts and affections and feelings of those around him. Why is he praying? So that others might see him. They pray like my child seeks attention. I have a child who's adopted who hasn't really embraced that adoption entirely. And so he yells and he screams for attention. Why? Because he longs to have someone. He's asking the question, will someone love me? Will someone give me attention? And he's scared. And he's living out of fear. And some of you, this is actually how you pray. This is how you live your spiritual life. You show up to church. And what you're saying to everybody else around here at church is this. I am so scared. I am an orphan child and I am longing for some place where someone will give me some shrapnel of security, some shrapnel of appreciation and love and affection. Isn't this how Paul actually describes the opposite of what it is to be adopted by God? And Romans chapter 8 verse 15 in the great passage there about our adoption, he says this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. The reason why so many of your fears, why your prayers and prayer life may be so dead is because you're praying in order to be seen, to be seen by men. Now, many of you don't think that verse actually applies to you. You think, well, I'm not one of those who prays every single week in community group. I'm not one of those people who like just kind of seems to pray at all the prayer meetings, and I'm definitely not one of those pastors who gets up and has entirely way too long pastoral prayers. I mean, what's with those guys anyways? We're tired of hearing from them. God's, God's checked out a long time ago this prayer is so boring. No, you misunderstand it. If, this, if, this is, if Jesus is only talking to professional clergy here as to those who pray in order to be seen by men, we've missed the point. The point Jesus is saying is this, is where are you finding your approval for why you carry out your various spiritual activities? The difference between a child and an orphan is a child looks to one father for approval ultimately. When you're a child, you look to one person. You say, I want my father's affection. And it doesn't matter necessarily what everybody else thinks, but I have his affection. But an orphan, what's an orphan bound to? An orphan is bound to who, whatever anybody else around them feels and thinks about them. And so therefore, they begin to live their life. You, you, you may be an orphan, and you're down in your heart of hearts, and therefore it comes out in your prayer life because you live for the approval of others. Because you, when you walk into a room, you're thinking more about what other people are thinking of you. You're thinking about this constantly. How am I coming across? How am I being viewed? How do I project myself to other people? This is so insecure, and it's the heart of an orphan. And Jesus is saying that this is the lifestyle of someone who is seeking to be seen by others. Yes, you may not be a demonstrative prayer. You may not be one of those people. You may not be an ameneer in the prayer meetings, and you may not seem to be the one who dominates prayer conversations, and you may not be one of the people who gets up here and prays. But you may still have the lifestyle and the heart of an orphan in the way you interact with your gods. So let me ask you this. Are you a child or an orphan? You live for the approval of others or have you found approval from your gods? And that, that approval drives you to spend time with him. I might say this, at the core of your spiritual activities, of all of them, is it in order to be seen by your children, by your spouse, by the people in your Bible study or community, or in your neighbors, or have you, had you do all that you do in order to be seen by your father? 
You dance to be seen by him and him alone. Well, that's one way in which orphans pray. They're longing for the approval of others. Another way the orphans pray is they pray with many words in order to be heard. This time it's not so much the issue of the audience. They're not so much listening, praying in order to be heard by men around them. The issue is that the way in which they come to God the Father in prayer is that they believe that their prayer life is actually the means by which they're accepted by God into God's presence. Jesus intends, you see, he actually, I think he feels pity for these that he's comparing with here. We think how ridiculous these people are. These people with their long-winded prayers and their recitations and their reading from traditional prayer books, and they think they will be heard and seen because of the way that they do things and for how long their prayers are. God, but we think, we've missed the principle, which is this. We think, this is how often and many of you think, we think that God loves me when I do blank. God accepts me when I do blank. Or God loves me less when I do blank. Therefore, this is why for so many of you, the, because you don't, you're like so all of us, and maybe you have a weak prayer life, and so about once every couple of weeks, you get kind of like a, a fly in the ointment, and you go, I should pray. And so, but because you, you haven't prayed, the first thought you have as you come to God the Father is this, man, it's been so long since I prayed. And so how do you bring in your prayer life, your time with the Lord? God, I'm really just so sorry. I'm so, I'm so pathetic. I should, have been, I should be here every single day. God loves me less when I don't have a great prayer life. That's the assumption there. When we become enslaved to our religious performance to tell us how God feels about us, then you are like this. Yes, your prayers may not have a lot of words to them. That may not be your particular problem, but heart of hearts, you're an orphan who is coming before God, who is simply, who know you have blown it, and therefore you're trying to talk around all the problems in order to make yourself feel good before you come into God's presence, in order to try to win from God his acceptance when he's already given it to you. So many of you start out your prayer time apologizing to God, trying to win your way back into his presence, and the Father says, no, no. Confession and pleas for repentance comes later, first, First, when you embrace prayer, you embrace my relationship with you, which is as a father to a child. You notice where forgiveness is in the Lord's Prayer. It's like fourth. We stop, stop looking at yourself so much and trying to be babbling with your words in order to make yourself feel better, but instead come and reflect on who God is and what he has done for you and worship him for a little bit because he's the one who's welcomed you in his presence. Do you understand this point? I'm not simply just trying to talk about the Lord's Prayer here. When you pray, when you fast, when you give, it reveals the major question of your life, are you an orphan or are you a child? Asking the question as to why you give and why you fast and why you are led in the prayer answers the question as to whether you view your life primarily through the lens as a child of God or as an orphan. Do I know God as my father or not? And by the way, if you're a Christian, it is still possible for you to live like an orphan, right? That's why Paul had to write Romans 8, verse 15. You aren't an orphan anymore, and yet some of you keep slipping back into orphanhood, despite the fact that you have been adopted and you have the right to call out Abba, Father. There's a tendency into our hearts to slip back into an enslavement to what others feel about us and think about us, into an enslavement towards guilt and uh, the way we do our relationship with God. But you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you were given a spirit of adoption. 
Why are orphans afraid? They're afraid because they will be abandoned, that no one will love them. They're afraid to fail. But God says, no, no, those who know they're adopted, they come to me because they know that they are approved of, that there is no level or degree of failure that I will not still accept them and draw them in. So let me ask you this. Have you recently, in this week or in the last month or in the last day or this morning, responded in your relationship with God like an orphan child? Worry, worry is the life of an orphan child. All your worrying it's one of the things that I've realized about my wife and I and our, our relationship and some of the weaknesses that I feel like that we have that I've led us in very poorly is that my wife and I, we are great at connecting and talking about the problems of our life, but I've actually begun this, to boil down spiritual leadership in my house, which comes down to these words, let's pray about that. To take our worry and take it away from us and give it to God the Father, because it's the difference between living as a married couple, as children of God, or living as somewhat connected orphans before some distant father. When you're riddled with anxiety, that is the perspective of an orphan. When you hate yourself, that is the perspective of an orphan. When you feel isolated or within you're withdrawn, that is an orphan. So are you an orphan? Are you an orphan or are you God's child? Now this is controversial, but it is biblical. And this is important for you to understand. Not all people are God's children. This is, this is in the, the ether of the church world and definitely the ether of the cultural world. We hear it a lot. All, everybody in the world is God's child. That is simply not true. You may be creationally God's child, but you are not relationally God's child. These are two radically different things. That in the fall of man and with our sin that we said we reject the father, we have run from dad, we have said we want nothing to do with you, we have emancipated ourselves and we have said, not only do I want my inheritance, the world that you've given me, but I want you dead and gone. I don't want your last name. I don't want you anything to do with me. We are no longer his child. This is why in John, John chapter one, it says why Jesus came. Verse 12, it says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, talking about Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, which assumes two things, right? One, that you are not naturally God's child, but then two, through Jesus Christ, you can become God's child. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It is a gift that we receive by faith. If you're not a Christian, well, this is how you become a Christian, if you don't know that you're, if you know that you recognize that I'm an orphan and I am not God's child, this is actually how you become God's child by saying, I, I, I have nothing. Only by Christ's work can I become God's child. And in the Bible, we have a term for what this act of becoming God's child, you know what it is? It's the same term we use here in our modern day vernacular, it's called adoption. That's why Paul calls it in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 15, that we have the spirit of adoption, the one who declares inside of us that we are adopted by God. And therefore, therefore, do you want to stop praying like an orphan? The comparison between those who pray like orphans and those who pray like children of God, that's the second thing I want to look at this morning. Praying as a child of God. Are you an adopted child of God? Is your prayer life, is, does it blow out of and come out of the sense that my dad wants to spend time with me? What is adoption? Do you know what adoption is? 
And I'm not, I'm not t- simply talking about like adoption out here in, like, in, the, in, in, our, in our day and age. I'm talking about biblically, what, is this, what does it mean for God to adopt us? Because I think we actually, in our heart of hearts, the majority of us is that we view ourselves as being children of God, but second-class children of God. Jesus is the real son of God, but us, we're kind of like these kind of like, we're the red-headed stepchildren of the kingdom, literally. But is that how Jesus and the Father view us? You want, to know the, you want to know the very definition of biblical adoption? Jesus gives it to us in John chapter 17. He says this, verses 21 through 20, 23. If you would just simply get this text, oh my goodness. He's praying to the Father and he says this. Jesus says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. And the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and then here's the kicker, and loved them even as you loved me. Do you understand, you understand what he's saying? This is going to sound theologically blasphemous, but God the Father loves you in the same way that he loves God the Son. There are no redhead stepchildren in the kingdom of God. Don't let it blow over you. For God to be your Father means that he looks at you in the same way. He feels the same way about you as he feels about Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, what does God the Father say about Jesus? He declares he cannot stay silent from heaven, but he must declare forth, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he gets up there again, and a few of the disciples are there with Jesus. Once again, God the Father has to speak. He has to speak. He cannot stay silent. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that he says that about you? I remember the first time I ever saw one of my children. When Lila was born, I, it was the most I, I, bizarre experience of tears in my life. It felt like they came from a depth of my soul that I, I didn't know existed anymore. I had never seen this human being. And that first experience, that is the emotional, the, the butterflies that God the Father gets when he sees you. This is not vapid, bumper sticker Christianity. You gotta stop and you gotta think about it. To be adopted means that God the Father looks at me like he looks at Jesus. What if you believed that? What if you believed that? What if you believed that when God looked at you, the fireworks exploded in his very being with excitement? Jesus says, I pray that they would know that you love them even as you love me. That's adoption. That's adoption. So Jesus is telling us who God is. The God who is ours, our Father. 
In the same way, we are not being given a prayer technique, but we are given a way to view the world and to live in the world through the lens of who? God. To view yourself through the lens of God. To view God's creation through the lens of the Father. Let's get one thing clear here. The most important thing in your prayer life is indeed the most important thing for the rest of your life. God is your Father. Believe it. That's about 10, 15, 20 years ago after Francis Schaeffer and then there was particularly a movement in the reform world of something called the Christian worldview. This is the beginning of a Christian worldview. To view your world through this lens that God is your Father. So God is your Father. J.I. Packer says that the whole New Testament can be summed up in a single phrase. If one speaks as if the revelation that the Almighty God desires to be none other than our Father. Now here's the issue for so many of you. There is a problem with this image, isn't there? Because you had a father and he was absent, distant, or downright abusive. Incidentally, but not surprisingly, the father, your experience of who your father was, is one of the primary things that shows that whether someone will come to faith in the biblical gods. Freud famously said this, that nothing destroys, yes, Sigmund, that guy, that Freud, says nothing destroys someone's faith in God like a bad relationship with their dad. And apparently their mother as well, according to his, and he would know, he had a terrible relationship with his father. In fact, there was a book by a guy named Paul Vietz, in a book he wrote, uh, God and Other Small Topics, he said in that book that all the, the most famous atheists of the past couple centuries, Freud, Huxley, Voltaire, Human, all of them had bad relationships with their earthly fathers. He concluded in the book that this, that the way one views their father is often the weightiest factor in the development of your personal faith. Give you an example of this. There's a woman, Philip Yancey talks about, who every time she hears about this image of God being the father that she cringes because she lived under her father's unspeakable abuse for years. And therefore, the word father has been spoiled and tarnished for her seemingly forever. He said another friend of his grew up with the image of a white male God up there with a huge white beard and large hands, an, an autocrat who kept track of all of her de- defects. So later, she described that same image to a spiritual mentor, and the mentor looked at her and said, well, why don't you consider firing that God? And so she did. In fact, for the reason why some of you feel so distant from God is that because you have fired this image of God, because you have brought the earthliness of your immoral, sinful, broken father into this image, and therefore, if we're going to be able to use this, we need a biblical image, a biblical vision of fatherhood again. And so what is that? Well, we have, we have to be brief on this. Therefore, we'll only look at one verse. But fortunately, it's a very powerful verse. In fact, it may be the greatest verse in all of the Bible. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. It's very simple. This is the prodigal son. And here's what it says. And while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. G.K. Chesterton said that verse 20 of Luke 15 is the simply the greatest display of the furious love of God. What kind of, how do we describe 
the fatherhood of God. What, what do we see in this one verse? God the Father is seeking, waiting, looking, longing, pursuing. That's who his father is. He's out on his front steps looking. Why does he see his son coming from a long way off? Because he is longing, wooing him home with his look, seeking for him to come home. How else does he describe him? He, see, he is the seeing God. He sees our woundedness and our brokenness, and he acts. He is the compassionate father, it says, He's on the front porch because it says there that literally that word for pity or compassion in the Greek is this, that it's as if his intestines were all cut to pieces, that he has a longing for his son. The father is moved with pity and compassion. The son who said, I wish you were dead, and yet he longs for him to come home. You You know why that is so important? It is so important to see that God's empathy in his fatherhood is for you. His compassion is for you. Here's how a 14th century mystic named Julian, a female mystic named Julian of Norwich put it. She said this, Our Lord does not want his servants to despair because they fall often or grievously. For our falling does not hinder God in loving us. He is the compassionate father. He is the running father. That here is his son who has abandoned him and spit upon him and neglected him. And yet what is the father's feeling towards his son? Compassion and empathy and pity. And so what does the father do? He gets up and he runs. He runs. He's the running father. And then in John, if John chapter 17 verse 23 is the great definition of adoption, here in Luke 15, 20 is the great picture of fatherhood. Well, how does it end? That he runs to the son, and then he hugs him, and it, well, how does it end? And he kisses him. The father ran. The father embraced. The father kissed. Oh, the kiss of the father. Have you experienced it? To be kissed by the father is to experience the fullest expression of the father's love and mercy and kindness, and indeed the father's joy over you. Joseph Bailey tells the story of his son. Joseph Bailey's a writer for a paper, and he tells the son of his own story. His own son's name was Tim, and Tim became a rascal as a teenager, defiant, made life difficult and impossible in the house. He rejected everything his family stood for, everything about his family's faith, everything about his family, what they loved to be and do. And one day he finally left the house, and he ran away from home. He divorced himself from the family. And he was living a wayward lifestyle. His life became an utter mess, full of drugs, alcohol, homelessness in many cases. His life was completely destroyed. But one night, this father, Joseph, got a call around midnight from the police saying, we have your son. He was incarcerated for a DUI. And so he began in his longing to see his son again and to bring his son home and to help his son. He drove down to the local police station. They never said which police station it was. He just simply assumed that it was the one in his local town. And he went to this local police station and went in there to retrieve his son. They said, we have no record of your son being here. Perhaps he's in the next town over. So he went to the next town to the police station there. And he went to the next town to the police station over there. And there was no sign of his son. All night he searched for his son. He drove to the next town, and finally he drove to the city where his son lived in a shabby crack house with a group of other people. It was about four in the morning, and there he finally found his son. Apparently his son was not in jail. And he opened the door to the house, and he walked inside. There was no furniture, simply dirty pallets on the floor and pillows. And there his son lay sleeping on the floor in this dirty, grimy place. 
And he says in writing about this moment as he looked down at his son with overflowing affection and tears began to stream down his face. And he didn't wake his son. He simply bent down and he kissed his son on the cheek and then turned and walked back out the door. A couple months later, their son Tim showed back up at the house and his life began to change. He reconnected himself to the family. He got off drugs, abandoned alcohol, began to be involved in the family life and activities, began going to church with his family. And so about six to eight months later, after his son had returned home, the father was half sitting down having a conversation with him and he simply asked the son, hey, could you tell me, was there ever a moment that, what was it that led you to come home? What brought you home? How, how did your life, how did you decide to do a complete 180? And his, his, dad, his son said, Dad, you didn't know? That night in which the police called and said that I was in jail with a DUI, that was a crank call from me and my friends. And that night when you walked into the crack house where I was living and you walked up to me, I wasn't asleep. I saw you and I, I just simply pretended to be asleep. And yet something in me broke when you bent down and you kissed me. And it was in that moment that I knew I, I got to go home. That if I have a dad who would search for me all night, then that is what wooed me home. This is the father love of your God. Have you experienced that kind of relational moment with your God? Who looked at you in all the despicable mess, the homelessness that has brought about in your sin, your orphanhood, and yet he looked at you with tears in his eyes, and he comes down and he kisses you, and he brings you home. This is what it means to be found. What if you believed that there was one, a father in heaven, who loved you like that? Let me tell you something. If you believed that, let's apply it to our prayer lives. My guess is you wouldn't be able to get off your knees. We would stop talking about models and manufacturing prayer, but we would long to talk to that father. And it would change your prayer life. It would change your prayer life. You would start praying like, well, like children. How do children, when they talk to their parents, talk? With utter irrational confidence with an audacity to ask the stupidest and wildest things. They ask for ice cream before bed. And they're told no, but they ask again the next night. And when your kids are a mess, and when they come with confidence, and they can come with confidence even, and in fact they come most often that when their life is a mess, they come crying to you with the request when they have skinned their knee. When they are, they come, my kids, my goodness, it sounds like a herd of buffalo are coming back on across the house when they have a bad dream. Because they long to be in my presence, why? Because in that moment they desperately need me. And so do they come all, you know, how do my kids come in their prayer life to their father? They come busting into the door. There is no coherent words. It's simply tears and yelling and moaning and groaning. It is incoherent. And yet some of you think you need to come to God with very polished prayers. So let me tell you this. If you come to God as a child, guess what? You can come to God with utter confidence. With utter confidence. N.T. Wright says this, that we don't have the right to say this prayer, the, the Lord's Prayer. 
but it's part of the holy boldness that we have. He's an English guy, so I love this. It's part of the almost the cheeky celebration of the sheer grace and goodness of the living God that we can actually say the words of the Lord's Prayer. That we, it's like a child dressing up in his, in his parents' outfit. That we're dressing up in Jesus' prayer. We, don't, we can't pray like this. This is an outfit. This is a prayer that's too big for us. But we can dress ourselves up in it with boldness coming before God the Father. Paul Miller, in a book called The Praying Life, we actually walked people through it last particular summer. I'm going to use it a lot during the series. said this, that the difficult of coming, difficulty of coming just as, our, our, as we are with confidence is this, is that we are a mess. And that our, we, so many of us avoid prayer because prayer only makes it worse, he says. When we slow down to pray, we are immediately con- confronted with how unspiritual we really are. With how difficult it is to concentrate in God, we don't know how bad we really are, how bad we really are until we try to be good. Until you try to be a good prayer, you won't realize how bad you are at it and how distant you really feel from God. But this is the gospel. This is the welcoming heart of God, that there is grace for you even in prayer. That God cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers, with your incoherent babblings, with your cries before the Lord. Does Jesus not say, doesn't he say, come to me all who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, who have learned to sit for hours before their father without never thinking about what they're having for dinner. Those who come with their minds never wander and to them I will give them rest. No, that's not what it says, is it? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. In fact, the best prayers are those who don't know how. As we looked at and saw a couple weeks ago, when the spirit of the living God has to simply cry out within them, Abba, Father, I have nothing else to say. And so you can come as a mess. That's the kind of confidence you can come as a child. You can also pray big. Children are supremely confident, irrationally confident in their parents' love and power, aren't they? They think, they think that you can buy them a car when they're 16, Instinctively, they seem to trust. Let me tell you something. When you learn to pray to a father, it will actually begin, begin to be the beginning of hope and faith in your life, in your Christian life again. You might actually begin to be praying for that dad who hates Jesus and perhaps hates you, and for the first time in years, you'll begin praying for his salvation. Because you have the father who raised the son from the dead. And you'll be able to pray as if God is a friend. And you might even be able to pray for your enemies. You know, one of the greatest displays of prayer is when Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has the cheekiness, and he writes words, to keep asking God the Father, listen, if there's only 50 people there who love you, will you save the city? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And he just pestered God. How do little children pray? And if you ask a parent, how long, how well does a little child pray? Or even how, how, does, a long, how does a one-year-old play? Not pray, but play. Some of you have prayer ADD, and that's okay. Just pray. Just pray. Here's how Brendan Manning calls it, how he says it is this, and he's written, he's made a career out of talking about this relationship between us and the Father. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he says this, a father is delighted when his little one, leaving off her toys and friends, runs to him and climbs into his arms. And as he holds his little one close to him, 
He cares little whether the child is looking around. Her attention fitting from one, flitting from one thing to another or just settling down to sleep. How many of you have fallen asleep praying? It is a great thing. Essentially, the child is choosing to be with her father, confident in the love, the care, the security that is hers in those arms. Our prayer is much like that. We settle down in our father's arms, in his loving hands. Our mind, our thoughts, our imagination may flit around here and there. We might even fall asleep, but essentially we are choosing for this time to remain intimately with our father and giving ourselves to him. It is very simple prayer. It is very childlike prayer. It is prayer that opens us up to all the delights of the kingdom of God. So we just want to end with this. The Lord's Prayer uses two words for Father. We've primarily focused on the Abba part, that intimacy, because that's the part in which we lose easily. But you know, there's actually two words here. In the Greek, it's Abba Pater. Abba, Jesus uses a double name. It's Daddy Father. You can, some commentators have actually reminded us that this, what this means is pater means that we have to be reverent when we talk to God's. But reverence, I don't think, hits our ears and our modern ears correctly. Because it, doesn't, it, it seems to uh, put aside and push out the intimacy piece. Philip Ryken, in his own translation, when he used these two words of Abba Pater, says, it's like dearest father, but I don't think that's right either. Unless, you, unless most of you talk like a Victorian person writing a letter. The best way to put it, I would say, is this, with these daddy-father, is simply that it expresses awed intimacy. Awed intimacy. How can you have awed intimacy when you come to God the Father in prayer? Awed intimacy may be achieved by answering and meditating on this question, how did God become your father? You know, the person who uses the term father more than anybody else is Jesus. Over 70 times in the Gospels, our father, my father, your father, he is always referring to God as father except in one place. Every time he refers to God, he refers to him as father except in one place. On the cross, in one of Jesus' final words, when he refers to God, he doesn't refer to him as father. Instead, what does he say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, Jesus became the orphan that you and I were. Abandoned so that we would never have to be. God turned away, as we sang earlier, and we're going to sing in the moment. God turned away from his son so that he might never turn away from you. Might never turn away from you. So Jesus communicates and embodies the Father's love to us. Look what lengths and degrees the Father will go to make you his. And you know, these beautiful words, it's so fabulous. Jesus knew this is what he was doing. Because the night before he went to the cross, here's what he says to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. And he doesn't. And so we pray our Father. Maybe we should do that now. Let's pray.
Father, I, I um, <laughs> Lord, yeah, my heart for my brothers and sisters is that they would um, that they would feel your embrace and your kiss. I don't like being a sermon illustration, God, when I don't know what to say. Lord, you know, you know the longing of my own heart and the pain that resides in it. The way in which Monday through Saturday I usually live as an orphan. Angry at the world because I don't trust you. Like a skulking, abused child, away for, staying away from everybody. Oh, Father, restore me. I pray that for those in this room who have the same experience, for those who feel dead inside, who wonder, who feel no spiritual life, they open their Bible and you aren't there. They talk to you and you aren't there. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd run to them. Uh, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you convince them in their heart of hearts that they are yours. That you would awaken in them the feelings of love and affection that you have for them that perhaps they've, they've lost. For those in this room who are overwhelmed by their emotions because they're trying to do life by their own strength, Lord, would they repent? <laughs> and may their repentance look like tears in your presence. A gushing forth of all that they're afraid of and all that they care about and all that they're hurt by in your presence. Yeah, Lord, I, I pray this week as our community groups begin, I pray that we would be a community that says, Our Father. Our Father. And that everybody who comes into this place would, would experience the Father love of God manifested in amongst the children who are secure in their inheritance in Jesus Christ. I'm babbling now, Lord, so I'm going to stop and we're going to sing. Amen.